Before I begin, this is my Twitter handle and Instagram handle. This is pretty unfair that I get to do all the talking and we can't actually have a real conversation, but that is what I hope we can do. So uh, please ping me if there's any questions or you know, really things that uh, interest you. So I'm here to talk to you not about the death of the CMO, but about the end of an error, how marketing sold its soul to ad tech and how we can get it back. But before we go, we're going to talk about corn. I love eating corn so much. I love eating corn. If you were to look on my Instagram, you would see photos of me eating tacos, tamales, arepas, elote, pozole, trayudas, all of it. I appreciate corn derivatives from Mexico and in Latin America so much because one, obviously, it is super, super yummy, but also because I often think about how corn is one of the world's most important technologies but at the same time, it's also one of the most misunderstood technologies. You see, when the Europeans landed in the Americas, they didn't just notice all the gold and women and bodies that could be used to grow their empire. They also noticed that the primary food source sustaining these civilizations was corn. They thought, hey, this corn, it is such a magical thing. We want it. So among all the things that they took back with them to Europe were corn. So here's a message that I found from a Columbus's expedition where Pedro Matier de Anlera wrote a letter to the cardinal of the papal court in Italy. And he says, my messenger will also deliver to your eminence some of those black and white seeds out of which they make bread. These black and white seeds that you know, Pedro is referring to were the first seeds taken from the Taino Indians back to Europe in 1494. Shortly afterwards, by the turn of the century, by the 1500s, corn had become a staple diet all around Europe and its colonies in Africa. This is where Italy gets you know, their expertise in making polenta. But then the problems began in Europe and all the places that they introduced corn. You see, corn-dependent populations in Europe and all of its colonies started to experience extreme malnutrition. I'm not just talking about like, oh, you know, a little bit of hunger, no, literally extreme malnutrition and all the diseases that come with it. And one of them is pellagra, which you may not have heard of, but it used to be a really big problem, which is it causes memory loss to diarrhea, to skin issues such as like canker sores, dermatitis, and like skin scales that make people really sensitive to light. And when it's not treated, when it's untreated, it's actually deathly. Hundreds of thousands of people have died from this, from pellagra, and this went on for hundreds of years. No one could figure out why corn-dependent populations, only the ones in Europe and its colonies, were experiencing this. You know, when for centuries, the corn-dependent populations in the Americas were like, we've never experienced this. We have no idea what this kind of malnutrition is that you're experiencing. So. Why was this super magical thing, corn, only causing diseases in one part of the world and not this other part of the world that had known about it for centuries? Well, it turns out that European explorers were so quick to see corn as this magical solution that they didn't really understand or value all the work it takes to making corn usable for its full nutritional spectrum. So they didn't bother to tell anyone about the super important practice called nixtamalization. 
This is a practice that goes as far back as 1200 BC that's been carried out in every society in the Americas that has been growing and eating corn. What it is is that after harvesting the corn, you take out the kernels and you soak it in this alkaline substance. It's like vat of, you know, lime and ashwood, and it changes the entire corn chemistry. The protein chemistry literally shifts, and it becomes more nutritious. You know, releasing things like niacin, which is vitamin B3, and we need this amino acid because without it, we would not survive. Because otherwise, you experience things like malnutrition and pellagra. And all these other diseases. So the Europeans literally thought, "Oh, we can just take corn from the Americas and replicate it elsewhere and get the same results." This is magical thinking. You know, while the Europeans did get some benefits from the corn by skipping this really critical practice of nixtamalization, they didn't really get the full spectrum of nutritional benefits. So that's why you know it led to really catastrophic outcomes. So why am I telling you this story? We're in a marketing future marketing talk, right? Well, I'm telling you the story because I think we're doing the same thing with big data. But the problem is we just we just can't see it because we're so. Close to it, we literally live and breathe big data. We are in the big data era. We're in data-driven decision making. So we're so caught up in the similar kinds of magical thinking. You can imagine right now, you know, some like similar letter to Pedro Matier being sent to the cardinal, but instead of you know being delivered by Pedro, it's like delivered from like some person from the tech startup or Silicon Valley world with you know updated verbiage for our big data era. Like, hey, you know, my data scientist will also deliver to your CEO, you know, some of those black and white seeds out of which, um, oh, no, sorry, these unstructured data sets out of Which they can make insights. All right, there we go. So, whoa! So we're going to move forward some slides out of which they make insights. Ta-da! Thank you. We're all caught up now. So, so you can imagine that the similar letter is being delivered, right, in the modern era for big data, and. And it seems so familiar now because now it's like, oh well, back then it was about corn, but now it's about big data, and we all want to use big data for a really good reason. You know, we all want to be customer centric, meaning we all really want to understand our customers' needs and how to meet them. But so, in response to fulfilling this need, a whole entire ad industry has popped up called ad tech. Promising us that they could predict what people wanted and then deliver that message at the right moment to the exact eyeballs. And now brands have incorporated ad tech as this magical solution that would help reach and build relationships with customers at scale in a super personalized way. And we were told, as marketers, grow your marketing budget, shift everything around so that anything that traditional, qualitative, soft, mushy market research, creative stuff, just shift all that budget away and put it all in your media spend. And sure, ad tech can help us optimize, you know, our spend. But when it comes to actually being customer centric, we actually still can't prove it is more effective than what came before. You know, as a tech ethnographer. My goal is to understand how people use technology and what this means for society. 
You know, I look at specifically how we use data, how we use data to design products, and then how companies are using data and design for digital transformation. And one of the things I've been watching and working on is the field of big data as it relates to customer understanding. And from what I've seen, it's really hard to deny that something isn't going right with ad tech. And it's time that we talk about it. The ad tech industry in just the UK and the US alone is about 34 billion USD. This is humongous, right? But despite that, 70% of marketing executives say that they are dissatisfied with the state of online advertising. I have CMOs coming up to me all the time saying like, look, and they always whisper to me, they never say it out loud, but like, look, I invested in some kind of ad tech, we signed this like contract, but I don't, I don't think we actually understand our customers better than before, and in fact, I'm really worried that we actually know less about them. And they say this to me, always very quietly, and in whispers, behind closed doors, never out loud, thinking as if maybe it was their fault or that they're missing something. And I tell them, you are right to be worried, but you're not missing something. You know, your marketers now spend more time staring at dashboards, creating media models, target customers, and spending time with actual people. Marketing functions have become so siloed to the point where you know, brand creative and MarTech are at odds with each other. People in your own function can't figure out how to talk to the customer or agree on what it means to understand them. Meanwhile, your vendors are selling you the same solutions, telling you that if you just get more data about your customers, you will win them. So of course, this is worrisome. But this is not something you should be worried about alone. This is something we need to talk about as an industry. And you have to admit that something is terribly broken when governments that can't really agree much on you know, anything, are able to actually create such widespread consensus around big data, passing GDPR regulation that introduces new levels of bureaucracy that makes it even more difficult now for marketing to gather huge swaths of data about people without their consent and understanding. That's how we've arrived at what Doc Searles calls the biggest boycott in human history. 1.7 billion people are blocking ads on their devices. We like to think that we know about our customers because we have so much data on them, yet 1.7 billion people are blocking the primary channel for, you know, to receive our messages. So you know, if you're just using that data to make more ads that they don't want to see, can you really actually say you know your customer and that you really understand them? Big data has gotten farther, gotten us farther away from our customers. You know, we've been expecting it to be this like super magical solution to help us understand our customers, but there's really no proof that ad tech is delivering better eyeballs for brands, much less growth for customer centricity. You know, recently PNG says that precision targeting is actually defeating their marketing efforts, so they've slashed their digital spend. You have Newsweek putting in fraudulent code in their numbers of actually authentic billable impressions. So if you're trying to reach your customer through Newsweek, guess what? You actually did not reach real people. And massive brands like Pepsi and McDonald's have all pulled their ads out of Google and Facebook because they were pairing their ads next to Nazi, misogynist, and pro-terrorism propaganda. 
All of these outcomes are examples of ad tech's goals of eyeballs at any cost. Marketing's addiction to ad tech tools is commoditizing human relationships at the expense of customer understanding, which is the very thing that we want, that every single company needs to continue growing. The smartest marketers actually already know this. You know, this is why Joe Marchese, one of my favorite thinkers on this topic, he's the president of revenue at the Fox Marketing Group. He's long been encouraging people to install ad blockers, even though his very job is, you know, advertising. That is their stock and trade. And he literally wrote an op-ed piece in Wall Street Journal saying, I'd like to teach the world to ad block. I want to go from block to block, neighborhood to neighborhood, and knock on people's doors and tell them, put on your ad blockers on everything. So through my work, I've had the opportunity to work with marketing teams of all sizes, led by really smart people like Joe and many others. And I've done it at Fortune 50 companies to startups and everything from CBG companies to media to tech. And this, you know, through my work, I've seen that the smartest marketers, for them, it all, brand building always starts with the foundation of customer insights. Because only then can you figure out how to build an actual marketing plan. And then you decide, okay, who do we want to reach? What do they want to hear? And then how do we actually reach them? And now big data has come in saying, we're going to help you with that last part of the marketing plan of reaching the right people and enabling us to really make sure that the messaging gets to them. But somehow, companies started to conflate reaching the customer with understanding the customer. And then they thought they could really just skip that critical step of customer insights. And so because of this conflation, over time, consumer insights has become more siloed, more downstream, and mostly it's just about quantitative work far removed from strategic marketing decisions. And now some of you might be saying, hold up, Trisha. You know, we can skip that big data step because big data gives us all the kind of insights that we you know, need about our customer because now we know what they're doing, we know what their interests are, how they spend their time. But I want to be very, very clear here. Just knowing what your customers are doing is not an insight. We've moved all of our efforts to understand how to market to our customers to the very last mile, placing our faith in quantitative modeling such as ad tech and those who manage it. So the question is, is this big data's fault? No, I don't think so at all. It's very easy to blame big data, but We've just given it the wrong job. You know, we should be using big data to scale and accelerate an understanding of our customers, not to generate that understanding. This difference is so key. It may seem subtle, or like I'm being nitpicky with words, but I'm not. This is so key to understand. You know, the, and the reason why marketing has fallen to this is because it was, it's been very susceptible to the belief that big data could generate that customer understanding because long before ad tech even became a thing, like, you know, about 10 years ago, old school marketing was already, you know, blinded by what I call the quantification bias, which is this unconscious belief of valuing the measurable over the immeasurable. And it's been part of this long-standing trend that's why in marketing, we have now come to value quantitative reports over qualitative insights, analytics on our customers over stories about them as real people. It's why you get PDFs filled with charts and charts of your dashboards instead of stories, as if these things are in opposition. 
So way before the era of big data, marketing had already become data-driven by finding all sorts of ways to pretty much sort people into boxes, like with demographic targeting, psychographics, net promoter scores, new segmentation models, and like you know, inventing new segments like Dinks, you know, and constantly just reinventing and inventing new segments. And then, you know, a pretty much new school marketing came in and said, hey guys, we can put people into boxes much faster than what you're doing, and we're gonna do it with more science and more math. So ad tech built their data models off of pretty much already kind of circumspect old school marketing models, but they just sped up and they scaled out old assumptions about people as avatars. But speed only gets you so far. Ad exchanges now, as you can see, this is a snapshot of the ad tech world. Ad exchanges now aggregate so many parts of the supply chain, and it's actually really hard to know how something actually performs. Now it's just, it's so complex and it's so opaque that it feels magical. But I can't tell you how many times CMOs and marketers, you know, tell me how much they're struggling, struggling to figure out how any of this works and whether it even works. So what do we do? You know, we've, I mean, we're all struggling here with the, sitting here in the same boat. So in the same way that we've always had this solution to get the full spectrum of nutritional value out of corn, corn, we've always had the solution to getting the ROI out of big data. You know, we should be using big data to scale and accelerate an understanding of our customers, not to generate that understanding. So we need to stop outsourcing customer understanding to big data. We need to stop doing that because what we need to be doing is building human models that are reflective of data models. So this is what I mean. A human model is a qualitative understanding of people, who they are and what they care about and what motivates them. A data model is a qualitative understanding and it must be our quantitative understanding and must be our best attempt to turn that understanding into something quantitative and scalable. It should say data model, but it says date model, but you guys will know what I mean. Now the goal is to keep the gap between the data model and the human model as small as possible, not to have it be wide. And to do that, the first step is to start, to get that human model, is to start with thick data. This is what I call, how do I refer to qualitative data? It's that precious data that captures people's emotions and stories. And if you haven't heard the word, the term thick data yet, it's okay because I created it. And it's something that you should use because I needed to find a way to make qualitative data sound just as sexy as big data. I got really tired of sitting in a room with data scientists and them calling you know, qualitative data small or puny. Or people are like, so what do you do? Are you, what, what's an ethnographer? What, are you like a user researcher, a design thinker, UX, market researcher? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm all of that. I gather thick data. And now data scientists are like, yeah, I want that thick data. I'm like, right, yes, you do. So to do that, you know, to really understand your customers in this fast-changing world, this thick data is critical because it often reveals things that are not yet showing up in your quantitative data set. So for example, you may be using big data to optimize a pricing model that offers individualized discounts to your customers, but what if your customers don't want a personalized pricing model? 
You know, this, by the way, is not a hypothetical example. It's exactly what happened to Tesco. If anyone's from the UK, you know that they tried their loyalty pricing and personalized pricing model with loyalty cards, but it didn't work out and the company's value crashed in 2014 because their data model of how people wanted pricing really didn't actually match, you know, actual human models of how people think about pricing. Similarly, you may be using ad tech to optimize a number of eyeballs or number of click-throughs on your display ads. But if your customers aren't interested in display ads, how much is that really worth? You know, what if other opportunities might be missing? And how could those unseen opportunities be affecting the growth of your brand? So this is also when thick data is at its best, providing the big picture behind those like millions and millions of tiny optimizations. And it provides the why behind the what, the new and emergent and the unknown. And this also frees big data up to do what it does best, which is using machine intelligence to scale and speed up human intelligence. Now, the most common mistake that I see whenever we go into organizations is that now they're saying, oh, we'll just skip you know, building that human model part, and they go straight to building a data model. And while those organizations may feel like, oh, we're being data-driven now, we have a, a digital plan, we're in digital transformation, we're on the cutting edge, they are inevitably the ones who wind up with the most outdated and regressive data models. To avoid this, we all need to be asking, how do we best mathematically scale human models into reliable and meaningful data models? This is the one question that marketers, data scientists, researchers, whoever you are, C-suite, the board, ask this question over and over again. Right? Brands who know how to build really good data models, like, oh, there's so many to mention, like there's Domino's, there's Timberland, there's Glossier, are beloved by their customers because they always start with gathering the thick data and building a really good human model understanding before they build a quantitative data model. And by doing so, they're able to update their models, their products, and their marketing at the speed of their actual customers. To make big data usable, we need to take a really holistic approach to customer understanding that involves bringing the qualitative thick data and the quantitative big data approaches. That's how you get the depth of thick data and also the scale of big data. So this is what my company, Sudden Compass, does. We work with our partners to develop the strategy and hands-on practice that they need to rapidly generate customer insights and activate those insights at scale. And so we built a practice for that, and it's called integrated data thinking. And integrated thinking builds on the best of agile and lean and design thinking, but it's also built to be tech agnostic, to work with any tech tools you have. And even without taking one of our labs, the main, main takeaway that anyone can walk out of the, you know, this talk with is we say over and over again is that stop looking at your dashboards, get out of the building, and talk to your customers. If you just do these three things, you're already a million miles ahead. Customer understanding needs to be everybody's job, not just consumer insights, not just you know one team or the UX researchers. It needs to be everybody's. And you can't delegate, you really just can't delegate it to a particular team or a particular function. And you definitely can't pay a vendor to do it for you. And you certainly can't depend on just big data tools. 
When you make customer understanding everyone's business, then you can use thick data and big data together to actually achieve and activate an understanding. Amazing things can actually happen. So here's an example which begins with one of our Fortune 50 CBG clients based in the Midwest of the US when they were about to relaunch a laundry detergent in urban areas. Their entire creative and ad buying model was based on optimizing their existing message, which is basically that, you know what, doing laundry sucks and our product will make it easier. And they were hitting a pretty hard limit of how effective that you know, optimization could be for their human model. But they really weren't sure what they were missing. So we convinced a cross-functional group, including those from marketing and executive level leaders and sales, to actually leave their Midwest corporate office and to go all the way, you know, leave their suburban homes and go all the way to a laundromat in Brooklyn, just for a few days. And their initial response was like, um, yeah, Trisha, great. Let's actually ask one of our vendors to survey some people in urban areas. And we were like, no, we had explained to them, we actually want you to leave your beautiful, you know, the safety of your homes and your laundromats and just go hang out in a laundromat in Brooklyn. And we're like, bring some of your dirty clothes. We challenge them to give up some of the certainty and control that comes with treating people you know, like avatars that you can move around on the dashboard and cut and paste into these PowerPoint decks. And you know, what they saw was really amazing. Just after spending a few days collecting thick data in various laundromats, they learned a few insights that quickly undid all of their previous marketing plans. For example, one insight was that for many people, living in big cities, doing laundry is a social event. It's a bonding ritual, and it's a point in pride. If you look at this picture here in the laundromat from Williamsburg, you can see there's like a tiki juice bar, there's like a pinball machine, and a popcorn dispenser. They found out that in the laundromat is pretty much like a physical tinder because people were getting all dressed up and they were like so excited for what they were gonna wear and there was a place to hang out and to meet people for like either a one night stand or a place for new relationships. So based on this single insight and all these data points, they were like, okay, clearly doing laundry is very different and it, this big data dashboards, there's no way it could have told us any of this but they couldn't grasp this experience until they actually went there. And it only took actually one day for them to realize this. So they quickly abandoned their original ad buying plan and they said, okay, clearly doing laundry does not suck and laundry is a humongous social event. So they built an entirely new ad buying model and creative campaign on this single idea. And finally, they were able to use their big data apparatus to quantify and to scale a human model that actually reflected the people they were trying to reach. So this may sound like some like cute or quaint story, but the results are anything but cute. Through this work, we unlocked $300 million of new revenue for this Fortune CPG company. The lesson here is that to really understand your customers, we have to stop treating ad tech tools, much less any big data tools, as the magical solution. While it took hundreds of years for Europeans to realize that adoption of corn was missing this critical step of nixtamalization, we actually don't need to wait 100 years or even a couple of decades to figure out the problem with big data. Because like corn, there's always been people who knew about that missing step the entire time. We just ignored them because it was seen as like soft or traditional or less efficient. So with big data, we already know the answer. Getting customer understanding with thick data is not a mystery. 
but it does require a lot of hard work. It means that we have to leave our buildings and leave our dashboards and be open to discovering something truly new and surprising. One of my favorite quotes to end this talk is by Martin Wilcox. He's one of my favorite thinkers, and he's a director of Teradata's International Big Data Center of Excellence. And he says, you know, you can use big data to optimize for a couple million dollars, but if you want that billion dollar growth, you need integrated data thinking, big and thick data. So where would you want your company to be, to be optimizing or growing? And this is coming from someone who runs one of the world's best big data companies, and this is what he's telling you. So how is this going to play out? Well, ad tech is clearly not a magical tool that will solve all of our problems, nor will it prove to be entirely worthless. It's simply just going to become another tool in our toolkit. And it does some things that are very well, and other things not so much. You know, I but love when we you. give up our magical thinking and realign our expectations with reality, we'll see a world of possibility that was not there before. And so I ask us to tomorrow, let's celebrate the mar to mark the end of an error and say goodbye to ad thinking and magical thinking as GDPR comes in. So thank you so much. I hope we can now eat corn and use big data like ad tech with a totally different lens and purpose. Thank you so much. Thank you.